All right, praises be to our loving Yahuwah, our God, for gathering together uh, this evening to study his words. We are still in the book of Leviticus. Last week, we kind of started the whole theme on the topic of cleanliness. And you know that cleanliness is next to godliness. And so last week, we kind of talked about the foods that was forbidden. However, during our time, God has cleansed all foods, and so we should not be concerned about what to eat or what not to eat, just in case there are those who may be worried about that. However, having said that, we need to keep in mind God's wisdom concerning the prohibitions of certain foods. So for me, we should try to limit the intake of certain foods that God has deemed not clean during the days of the Old Testament, meaning limit your pork intake, right? And I think God knows what he's talking about. And so we will continue today talking about cleanliness because it is the theme of Leviticus. And so what is God's commandments concerning childbirth? Just in case there are mothers or those who are getting ready to become mothers. This is God's commandments. In the book of Leviticus 12, 1 to 2, Yahuwah said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her, her menstrual period. After waiting 30 days, she will be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. During this time of purification, she must not touch anything that is set apart as holy, and she must not enter the sanctuary until her time of purification is over and so according to Yahuwah Argon, if a mother gave, gives birth, for example, to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for how long? Bible says for seven days, and she needs to go through a process of purification. How long is that going to be? 33 days. So 33 plus seven, how many days do you get? 40 days and so basically she will be in social isolation or semi-social isolation for 40 days now one might think is this a punishment from Yahuwah our God I don't think so right why is that not a punishment because always remember Yahuwah is always concerned about the health and well-being of his people when God gives a command it may seem to be a burden we need to trust him. However, when God says a mother who has given birth needs to stay in isolation for 40 days or 60 days or whatnot, we need to trust in the wisdom of Yahuwah our God. Now, when it comes to childbirth, I think many of you will agree with this statement, right? Childbirth is one of the most stressful things that you can experience. I don't know. We can ask mothers who are here. Yeah, if I were, yeah, my wife is saying, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Back in the days of Israel or during the Old Testament times, I don't think they had anesthesia, right? And so it probably was a little worse during that time. If it's stressful now, it's probably more stressful back then. They had no air conditioning. Can you imagine in the desert giving birth to baby Hebrews? That is very stressful, isn't it? And so a mother is going through changes in her body. It's a stressful condition. And so if she was given 40 plus days of rest, what would that do for her? It would do a 
lot, right? Number one, the mother can nourish herself, right? Because she needs to replenish. Number two, the mother can nourish the baby. She can be focused on taking care of the new baby. Because remember, they did not have the convenience of having a hospital, a doctor, or a nurse. They had to rely on themselves. And so it would be better for the mother to be rested, to be focused on the work of taking care of the baby. Number three, during the purification period, 33 to 66 days, she remains in semi-isolation, thus avoiding what? Crowds, because they might have what? COVID. No, not COVID, but, you know, viruses, germs, because they had viruses and germs during those days too, right? Not only that, maybe the mother can be the carrier and she could carry uh, the virus to other Hebrew people. And so the virus would be spreading because they are living in a desert and they don't live near hospitals. They're traveling. And so there's like millions of people. And so God wanted to protect his people. And so 40 days of rest for a mother and for an infant, that indeed is a blessing from our almighty God. Not only that, according to, there was a study done in the mid-1800s by someone, a physician, Ignaz Philip Semmelweis, recognized that the spread of childbirth fever could have been prevented if birth attendants washed after a delivery. Yet biblical health laws have promoted this practice almost 3,000 years earlier. So when we follow the teachings of God, it protects us from disease. Remember, God wants to promote our health and our well-being. However, this is a, what I'm going to read next is going to be very interesting. Now, as I read this passage, I'm going to ask you after I read this passage, what you're thinking about. Okay? Is that okay? <laughs> well, let's read the book of Leviticus 12, verse 5. And I'm going to ask my daughter about what's on her mind because she's very socially active, socially involved. You know, Leviticus 12 and the verses 5, this is what it says. If a woman gives birth to a daughter, she will be ceremonially unclean for how many weeks? Two weeks, not one week. If it's a son, one week. Okay? Just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. After waiting 60 days, 66 days before, how many days was it? Huh? 33. 66 days she'll be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. And so when the mother gives birth to a son, the total day of rest is 40, right? Now, if it's giving birth to a daughter, how many days? You get the set 14 days plus 66, it's 80. You get the pattern 40, 80, right? Now, what comes to your mind when this law is given by Yahuwah or God? What comes to your mind? Because there may be those who are saying, is God telling us that males are better than females? What do you think, my beloved daughter? Yeah, is that what God is trying to tell us? No. There has to be a reason behind that. God is not telling us here that males are greater or superior to females. And we're going to confirm that later on. But what is the wisdom behind this law of God? You know, 
when it comes to giving birth to a son or a daughter, a male or a female, I don't know if you noticed this, who weighs more? Is it a, a baby son or a baby daughter? Son, son or daughter? How, how much How much did he weigh? One pound heavier. One pound heavier. Okay, usually it's about like that much, right? But, you know, according to this study, gender gap in birth weight shrinking study finds. So there's more now, there's less and less of a disparity between the weight of a son, the weight of a daughter. And according to this study, when they went back to 1981, a son would weigh 3.391 kilograms. And a daughter or a female would weigh 3.248 kilograms. And so on average, uh, a baby a baby boy would weigh more than a baby girl. So it would take more time for the baby girl to kind of catch up in weight. It kind of helps, you know, if you have like extra days where the mothers focus on the baby, right? But not only that, there's this study, and if you look at the study, it was conducted back in 2009, it's called neonatal mortality. What does neonatal mean? Neonatal. Study of infants, right? What does mortality mean? Huh? Death, right? And so they were studying what are the risk factors of neonatal mortality. What they found out was the reason for this difference was that the late neonatal mortality rate, which means deaths, from days 8 to 28 was significantly lower for males than females. Look at the numbers. That's a pretty significant difference, right? 5.5 versus 19.5 per 1,000 live births. That's how many times? Almost four times as much. And so the mortality rate for female babies is a lot higher when you check the late neonatal mortality rate. This was in 2009, 2014, 2013, another study was done. Sex difference in neonatal mortality rate. And this is what they found out, results. Neonatal mortality was comparable by sex. However, when they stratified the data by neonatal period, boys were 20% uh, greater risk of early, uh, of early uh, neonatal mortality. However, when they checked for neonatal mortality, the girls were at 43%. So when you look at the later parts of natalhood, like 28 days and above, right? Females have a higher mortality rate, which means what? They need more care to survive, especially when you are where? In the desert. This is why for females, more care was needed so that the baby can have a better chance at survival. There's another study from the Journal of Biblical Literature, volume 52, back in 1933. And in this study, you know what they did? They checked for the blood toxic levels of the mother after she gives birth to a son and after she gives birth to a daughter. That's what they found out. Very interesting. The average of all readings obtained from blood specimens procured after female births, revealed that these were more toxic than those obtained after male births. Interesting. These results are not altogether surprising. It is possible that blood obtained after childbirth may show differences dependent on the sex of the offspring. 
within the last few years, it has been demonstrated by the Russian investigator Manolyov and by others repeating and extending his work that certain chemical differences between the blood of male and female animals and indeed between extracts of male and female plants can be detected by suitable methods. It is therefore possible that blood obtained from women who have given birth to male children may show chemical and biological differences from blood obtained from mothers bearing female offspring. The present findings certainly speak in favor such a view and throw an interesting light on the biblical passage, which is the subject of the present paper. So according to the study, if a mother gave birth to a female, right, there's more toxic toxicity in her blood. She gives, if she gives uh, birth to a male infant compared to giving birth to a female infant, the toxicity level is lower, which means the mother, if you have more toxins in your body, do you need more rest or less rest? You need more rest. And so the additional days was for the protection, not just of the infant, but also of who? The mother. Who could have known this? Do you think Moses had this kind of medical knowledge? I don't think so. This was the wisdom and knowledge of Yahuwah are God. However, if you're a male son, what was also instructed by God? Leviticus, on the eighth day, the boy's foreskin must be circumcised. It's called neonatal circumcision. Because during the days of, uh, uh, some cultures, I guess, they circumcise their kids when they're older, right? Like when they're teenagers, when they're 13. In the Philippines, how old did they get circumcised? Well, <laughs> oh boy. But with... For the Hebrew kids, they were circumcised when they were how old? Eight days old. They had to be circumcised. You might be thinking, why are you going to put so much stress on the baby boy's life, right? Why do you have to circumcise? What's the purpose of this? Well, it turns out, according to a, board, a pediatrician named Dorothy Greenbaum, you know, she noted in regard to the health benefits of circumcision, this is what she said, okay? Medically, circumcision is healthful because it substantially reduces the incidence of urinary tract infection in boys, especially those under the under one year of age. Some studies cited in the Pediatric Policy Statement Report, 10 to 20 times more urinary tract infection in uncircumcised compared with uncircumcised boys. That's significant, not twice, not three times, how many times? 10 to 20 times. When you get infection during those days, do they have the solution? If, you, if someone got an infection, did they have like a vaccine that they can, can they get shots? No, and if this was bad during our time, how much more if you were in the desert with millions of people? When you get an infection, it gets worse when you are in that condition. And so God knew what he was talking about. You need to get your boys circumcised. What else? She further noted that sexually transmitted disease are passed more readily among men who have not been circumcised. In addition, circumcision virtually eliminates the chance of penile cancer. In an article titled Benefits of Circumcision, the text stated, neonatal circumcision 
virtually abolishes the risk of penile, can penile cancer. Penile cancer occurs almost entirely in uncircumcised men. So does God know what he's talking about? Absolutely. When Yahuwah God told his people Israel, circumcise your sons, it was for their own good. However, you probably noticed, not only did God say circumcise your sons, Yahuwah God also specified on what day, right? What day was it? The eighth day, not the seventh day. I mean, if you were making up a number, for example, you were Moses, you're gonna make up a number. <laughs> Let's make up this data. You probably say seventh day, right? You're Moses, the Sabbath. Let's put it seventh day. But no, it was eighth day. And you might be thinking, is that a random number? The eighth day? I mean, how many days does a human being have if he lived for eight years? How many days? 365 times 80. How many days is that? That's a lot of days, right? The eighth day out of all the thousands of days that is allotted a human being is a very special day. You know why? Because on the eighth day, take a look at that. On the eighth day, look at that, the available prothrombin. There's a chemical in the body. It's called prothrombin or thrombin. And on the eighth day, it peaks. And after the eighth day, it levels down. And so only on the eighth day, it reaches a peak time. The eighth day, not the sixth, not the fifth, not the ninth, but the eighth day specifically, you have this heightened level of prothrombin. So what does that mean? Well, from this book, none of these diseases, on the eighth day, the amount of prothrombin presently present actually is elevated above 100% of normal and is the only day in the man's life, right? The only day in man's life in which this will be the case under normal conditions. If surgery is to be performed, which is what circumcision is, right? Day eight is the perfect day to do it because vitamin K and prothrombin levels are at their peak. Vitamin K coupled with prothrombin what does it do? It causes blood coagulation. And so if you had a lack of prothrombin, you perform surgery, what would happen to the baby? The baby could bleed to death. Coagulation is needed because it's important in any surgical procedure. A newborn infant has peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and fifth days of life. Hemorrhages at this time though often inconsequential, are sometimes extensive. They may produce serious damage to internal organs, especially to the brain, and cause death from shock and insagination. And so according to science today, eighth, the eighth day of a baby's life or of a man's life is the only day where you have so much prothrombin needed for the surgery to conduct the circumcision. Do you think Moses know about that? I don't think so. This was wisdom and knowledge given by Yahuwah our God. You're kind of getting the sense it's better to trust in God, right? Do not question his laws. Do not question his commands. He owns what he's talking about. And so when he gives a command, it's for our own good. If we want to improve, if we want to progress, it's better to trust Yahuwah our God. Now, to drive home the point that Yahuwah does not 
show more favor to male than female, that they're equal, the eyes of God, what is the commandment of God to the mother when she has already been cleansed? Leviticus 12, 67. When the time of purification is complete for either a son or a daughter, the woman must bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering, a young pigeon or turtle dove for a purification offering. She must bring her offerings to the priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest will then present them to Yahuwah to purify her. Then she will be ceremonially clean again after her bleeding at childbirth. These are the instructions for a woman after, uh, after birth of a son or a daughter. So it doesn't matter. Son or daughter, it's the same offering. Why is there an offering given to God? Is it a sin? Is it a sin against God to give birth to a son or a daughter? No. What is the purpose of the offering? It is to acknowledge the blessing of our Almighty God. That's why you give us a purification offering, a burnt offering. It is to acknowledge the blessing of God. You see, when you acknowledge something has come from God, you acknowledge Him by giving Him what? An offering. Well, what if you can afford like a lamb? Because that's expensive. The younger the lamb, the more expensive it is. Right? This is a young lamb. Not all can afford that. So Yahuwah gave the provision for someone who's poor. A woman cannot afford to bring a lamb. She must bring two turtle doves or two young agents. One will be for the burnt offering, the other for the purification offering. The priest will sacrifice them to purify her, and she will be ceremonially clean. So when the Bible talks about clean, it's not talking about her holiness. It's talking about physical cleansing. And so it's not a sin to give birth to a child. It's not a sin to have intercourse if you're husband and wife. These are all according to the will of God. And so when there's a, uh, a child that is born, we go to the hospital and we witness a miracle of birth, what should we understand? The book of Psalms 127.3, children are a gift from Yahuwah. They are a reward from him. Do you believe that? The children are a gift. That's why I want you to say to yourself tonight, okay, before you sleep tonight, before you go to bed, I want you to say to yourself, I am a gift. Right? I am a gift. Because you are. A lot of people today are suffering from low self-esteem. You should not be suffering from low self-esteem. You know why? Because every human being is a gift from God. Our Almighty God. Even before you have accomplished anything, just by the mere fact you have been created, you are a gift. Why? Genesis 1.27, so God created human beings in his own image. We were created in the image of God. So the next time you see people see that they have been created in this, the image of God. And so when we understand our own intrinsic and inherent value, we will also respect and value other people because sometimes we before we value other people we look at their accomplishments right okay what have they done you know even without doing anything the mere fact they were created by God it means they are valuable they are a gift because they were created in whose image the image of God and so when God created us God has a purpose for our life find out what that purpose is just like Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. And so when we're formed in our mother's womb, it is God who has designed us. And when he designed us, you know what the creation 
is like Psalms 139, 13, and 16. You made all, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the room, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And so all human beings are valuable to our Almighty God. God created us wonderfully complex. Our brain, our physical body, everything about us was designed and created by God for a and so next time you see a baby boy or a baby girl, an infant, say to yourself, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. It cannot be explained by science. It cannot. Doctors watching a delivery of a baby, they can put on a textbook what happens, but they cannot explain to you how that happens. It is the mystery of childbirth. We call it a miracle from our almighty God. So value all human beings. Doesn't matter what race they belong to, what religion they may have, doesn't matter. They're human beings, they were created in whose image? The image of God. And so we need to value all living human beings as people who were created in God's image. Okay, that's our lesson. Let's go now to our mailbox. We have three questions today. Uh, first one is this Hello, Poka John, we have been missioning. What's that word, missioning? Sharing the faith. Missioning for our cousins who are born against, uh, who are born again Christians. And they forwarded us this verse telling that Christ is God because we were created in his own image. How should we answer them? So they cited Genesis 1 26, 28, which is what we read earlier, right, in the NIV. And so let's go ahead and read Genesis 1 26 to 28. Let's find out if it indeed teaches that Christ is God. Okay? Okay? Let's read Genesis 1, 26, 28. And God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In the passage I read, did you hear me or did you read the mentioning of Christ there at all? <laughs> no. It does not mention Yahusha the Christ at all in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. What does it mention? It mentions God saying, let us make man in our image. And so the question comes from the use of the word our. When God says, let us make man in our image. And so what is the assumption? That Yahushua, the Christ, was with God when God decided to create man. Is that what the verse says? That's not what the verse says. We need to understand what the verse says and what it does not say. What does it say? It says that there is a there, there's some other being that is with God, right? Because otherwise, 
It will not make any sense for God to say, let us make man in our image. So God is indeed acknowledging the existence of other beings before he created man. However, what it doesn't say is that it's Christ. It doesn't say that. To say Christ is among them would be to add to what the passages say, right? And so who were with God when God said, let us make man in our image? The book of Isaiah 6, 1 down to 3, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is on Yahuwah Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So who was in the presence of Yahuwah? On his throne when he created man. Who was it? The angels, namely the seraphs. There were also the cherubs, right? And other angels, other creations of God. Perhaps we'll find out what all of his creations in heaven are when we get to heaven. And so before God created man, he said, let us create God in our image. It was an editorial use of our. What does it mean, an editorial use? It's like you acknowledge the presence of others. Because when Moses was putting this, writing this passage, he knows that Yahuwah is with other beings. Okay, so it's like when we are together in this Bible study, right? And I say something like, let us read this passage, okay? Let us read and preach this passage. I'm acknowledging your presence. And so when God said, let us make man in our image, he's simply acknowledging the presence of other beings. It does not say there that Yahusha was already there and especially, it doesn't say that Yahusha is God, okay? That's to use too much imagination in the passage to get that to work. However, connected to that question is the follow-up question. Hello, po. And I ask question po. Meron po ako cousin na born again na nagkaaral ng theology. So I have a cousin who's studying theology. He's trying to explain that Yahusha existed before Abraham. That there's a pre-existence of Yahusha. Okay? And in John 58, yung aspo, meron na po kasaman ang ama. Tapos dito, in John 8:58, Yahusha is teaching that he had a pre-existence. Okay, and so they're citing John 8.58 to prove that Yahusha had a pre-existence, therefore Yahusha is God, which is a common belief among those who teach that Yahusha is God. Because as members of the Church of Yahusha, what do we believe? What is our teaching? We believe there's only one God. Who is our God? The Father. Yahuwah is the Father. Yahusha said in John 17, 1 and 3 that the Father is the only true God. And so if the Father is the only true God that was said by Yahusha, what does that mean? It means Yahusha cannot also be God. And so let's look at John 8, 58, and look at the context of John 8, 58. Is that okay? Let's go ahead and read John 8, 54 to 58. Because Yahusha said before Abraham was born, I am 
Does it prove that he has pre-existence? Does it prove that he is God? Let's read John 8, 54, 58. Yahushua replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Let's pause up for a while. Is it true that Yahushua is teaching here that he is God? No, because he said that the father, the true God, is the one who glorifies me. He did not say, I am God. He said, the father who is God glorifies me. So there's a distinction between Yahushua and his father. Yahushua is not Yahuwah. Yahushua is the son. His father is God. And he is the one who glorifies him. Verse 55. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But, Yahushua says, I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then the, the Jews go, wait a minute, Yahushua. You are not 50 years old. The Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? <laughs> I tell you the truth, Yahushua answered, before Abraham was, I am. So let's go to the first part, verse 56. Your, Abra your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Okay, I want to ask you. What does that mean? If you still remember our studies so far in Bible History Project, what's the one thing that keeps coming up again and again and again in our study of the first five books of Moses? Why did Yahushua say, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day? Did Abraham see the day of Yahushua? What is your answer? Yes. How and when? Let's go back to what we studied before. Do you remember the Akedah? <laughs> What's the Akedah? Go back to Genesis 27, 22-7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here. Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on to together. Remember the scene? Jehovah tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Go to Mount Moriah, sacrifice your son. Right? Did Abraham do that? Yeah. He was going to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. The promised son, Isaac, he was going to sacrifice him. And so when they were on the mountain, and Isaac is looking around, what are we, we going to sacrifice? Where's the lamb? What did Abraham say? God will provide. And so when they reached that place, what did Abraham do? Book of Genesis 22, 9 to 10. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He found his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Right? And so as he was about to slay his son, what happened next? 11 12. But the angel of Jehovah called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God.
because you have not withheld from me your, your son, your only son. Do you notice the phrases, the pattern used in Genesis? Son, only son, even though he already had a son before Isaac, right? Who was he? Ishmael, right? But promised son. But look at the phraseology. Your only son. Abraham goes, Isaac goes, where is the lamb, right? On Mount Moriah. Look at all these different elements playing together. It's creating a pattern. And the Bible is all about patterns. And so when yeah, uh, Abraham was about to slay son, there's a, a message from an angel. Do not slay your son. Jehovah knows that you are faithful to him. Okay. And so when Abraham looked up, what did he see? Genesis 22, 13 and 14, Abraham looked up and there... In the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Yahuwah will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of Yahuwah, it will be provided. And so during the days of Abraham, that mountain is called Yahuwah will provide. Do you know why Abraham named that mountain Yahuwah will provide? Why do you think? Because on that day, Abraham saw the day of Yahusha. The promise was given to Abraham. And so by faith, he saw the day. Not only the second coming, but also the first coming. This is why he was glad. This is why he named the mountain Yahuwah will provide. He will provide in the future. And so the lamb that was not there when Abraham was on the mountain, it will be provided this time, not by Abraham, but Yahuwah, Abba himself. This is why on that same mountain, Yahusha, the son of Yahuwah, the only begotten son, was nailed to the cross, the same place where this took place. And so it was an enactment of what is to take place in the future. And you see many instances of that, right? In the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, right? Where there's an allusion, it points to a type of who? Yahusha, Hamashiach. And so when the Bible says that Abraham saw my day, it doesn't mean Yahusha existed already. Instead, what Abraham saw was the promise of Yahuwah our God to provide the true land, Yahusha HaMashiach, okay? And so that's why he said verse 56. And then verse 58, I tell you the truth, Yahusha answered, before Abraham was, was born, I am. Why did Yahusha say that? Okay. Why did Yahusha say before Abraham was born, I am? You know why? Let's read the book of John 1 1. The Logos existed in the very beginning. The Logos was with God, the Logos was divine. And so, before the creation of Abraham, before the creation of the world, what was there with God? The Logos. The Logos. In English, it's the Word. So, in the beginning was the Word. Take note, the Bible doesn't say in the beginning was the Christ. He did not exist yet. What does it say? In the beginning was the Logos. 
And so why use the term logos instead of Christ himself? Why did Apostle John say the logos existed in the beginning with God instead of the Christ existing in the beginning? It's logos. What is the term logos anyways? In the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Wiry Study Bible, logos, Greek means word, reason, what else? Plan. You believe God has a plan? He plans a lot, right? He has a plan for everything. New, uh, the Ryrie Study Bible, Greek logos. Logos means word, thought, what else? Concept and the expression thereof. And so in the beginning, there was no Christ yet. He did not exist yet. Why? Because he was a logos of God. What does that mean? A plan of God. A plan of God. Uh, a concept that God has thought of. Why did he think of this concept? Because he knows we're going to fall into temptation. You see, before he created man, what he intended was man to be redeemed. That's why in number one on his thought was who? Christ. This is why the world was created for Yahushua. The Bible was created through Yahushua. Because when Yahuwah was creating all things, it is meant for who? For Yahusha to redeem. This is why the Logos was there in the beginning. What else, that, what else that, does that mean? First Peter 1.20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And so he was foreordained. Why does it say it's foreordained? Because in the beginning, there was no Christ yet. He was just a plan, a Logos in the mind of God. And this Logos in the mind of God, when Adam and Eve were created and they committed the first sin and they were going to be cast out of the Garden of Eden, what did God, Yahuwah God, say to them? He said it's going to be a seed. And so the plan of God was communicated to the first human beings. The promise, see, Genesis 3 verse 15. And so this promised seed was preached by the prophets. It was preached by and delineated by the prophecies. And even during the days of Moses and Abraham. This is why in John 5.39, Yahushua said, You diligently study scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. That's why he said, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Because the scripture is about him. The creation of the world is about him. Creation was created for Yahusha. This is why Yahuwah and Yahusha have similar names. Did you notice that? Right? Yahu, it has the term Yahu, which means what? I am. So Yahusha was in the mind of God. It doesn't mean that he existed who also was in the mind of God even before creating the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, even before he made the world, God, what does it say? God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes, even before the world was made. We also were in the mind of God. How can God love us? How can God choose us? If we are not in the mind of God. And so it doesn't mean that we are gods too, right? It doesn't mean that we had a pre-existence. 
It simply means we were also in the mind of God, just like Yahusha Hamashiach. That's why he was pre or pre, uh, all that was foreordained. Right? That's why Yahusha said, Before Abraham was, Abraham saw my day, because it was revealed to him on Mount, on Mount Moriah, which is why he called Mount Moriah what? God will provide. And he said, I am, before Abraham was old, because the world was created for who? For Yahusha HaMashiach. Okay? So he's not teaching in John 8, 58 that he is God. Okay? All right. Let's go to the last question. Well, actually, these are two questions back to back. Oh, my goodness. I forgot to erase it. I forgot to cross out the, uh, the origin. Of, uh, I hope sister or brother angel will not mind. Uh, well, not too bad. I mean, this is a good message. I, I love the, 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 the uh, question. It says, it says, God bless you, Brother John, as part of the messianic community, even before the INC had internal conflicts. I agree with you on this sound scriptural teaching. We were talking about unclean animals, Right? But I love what this is a he or she. Because angel can be he or she, right? Uh, maybe it's a he. But I love um, the comment here. These animals were not called unclean for nothing. That's true. And so we have to understand. That's why I want to, as much as possible, limit my pork intake. Right? We should all do the same. Limit your pork and lobster intake. <laughs> so these animals were not called unclean for nothing. And by the way, the issue with Christ and the Pharisees with him making all food clean, contrary to the wrong understanding of theologians, is not about eating pork. Certainly, pork was not kosher to the Jews before, as it is today. But ritual hand, but ritual hand washing. Read it all in context on Mark 7, 1 down to 15. And so there are, I guess there are some theologians who use Mark 7, 1 to 15, to teach that we can eat pork now. I don't believe Mark 7 teaches that. What Mark 7, 1 to 15 teaches is something else, which is why I really want to read Mark 7, 1 to 15, if you don't mind. The book of Mark 7, 1 to 2, is what it says. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Yahushua. They noticed that some of his disciples were eating their food with the hands that were ritually unclean. That is, they had not washed them in the way that Pharisees, the Pharisees said people should. So here's Yahushua. He's criticizing his favorite folks. Who are they again? Pharisees. Do you have a picture of Pharisees in your mind? Huh? You know, they like to make big show. They like to wear distinct clothing. They walk around expecting that people will greet them, right, the marketplaces. And they like to proclaim the word of God. And they feel that they're holier than the rest. They're called religious leaders. But when Yahushua came to earth, was on earth, he was preaching against them. Right? These so-called teachers of the law. And so these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, did not like Yahushua. And they did not like Yahushua's disciples. And so they were looking for faults. And they thought they found them. They said, look at your disciples. Look what they're doing. They're eating food and they haven't washed their hands. Right? And so they were criticizing them. What did Yahushua say? 
uh, Mark 7, 3 down to 5, for the Pharisees as well as the rest of the Jews follow the teaching they received from their ancestors. They do not eat unless they wash their hands in the proper way, nor do they eat anything that comes to the market unless they wash it first. And they follow many of the rules which they have received, such as the proper way to wash cups, pots, copper bowls, and beds. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Yahushua, why is it that your disciples do not follow the teaching handed down by our ancestors, but instead eat with ritually unclean hands? It looks like Yahushua's on the ropes. What is, what is he going to do now? That looks like a tough question to answer, right? And so what did Yahushua answer? Let's read 6 to 8. Yahushua answered them, all right, Isaiah was when he prophesied about you. I want to pause it for a while. Isaiah is a, a great prophet. You read, he's one of the major prophets, right? And Isaiah mainly spoke about hypocrisy and the rebelliousness of his people. It's in Isaiah where we find the prophecy concerning the pattern of the people of God becoming proud, right? God setting apart what? A small remnant, right? And so Isaiah, if you were to read the book of Isaiah, you will see pattern repeat itself again and again and again. Yahushua is using Isaiah and applying it to the Pharisees because he's saying you're the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Isaiah saw a lot of things with the people of Israel during his time. And Yahushua is applying that because the pattern that happened back then is happening again during the days of Yahushua. So Yahushua says how right Isaiah was what he prophesied about you. You are hypocrites, just as he wrote. These people, says God, honor me with their words, but their heart is really far away from me. So Yahushua said, you know what yeah, What Isaiah said back then concerning the Israelites, it applies to you as well. It is no use for them to worship me because they teach human rules as though they were my laws. You put aside God's command and obey human teachings. And so Yahushua, in response to the question concerning his disciples, Yahushua looked at their heart. You see, the Pharisees were concerned about the external, about the ritual, about going through what? The motion, right? Because these Pharisees, they added so many rules concerning the rules of cleansing that was given to Moses. They added so many concerning the Sabbath, concerning the cleansing. And in so doing, they forgot about their own heart. They actually forgot about the important commands of Yahuwah our God. Like what? Yahusha even added, and Yahusha continued, you have a clever way of rejecting God's laws in order to uphold your own teaching. For Moses commanded, respect your father and your mother, and if you curse your father or your mother, you are to be put to death. But you teach that if people have something they could use to help their father or mother, but say, this is Corbin, which means it belongs to God. They are excused from helping their father and mother. In this way, the teaching you pass on to others cancels out the word of God. And there are many other things like this that you do. So Yahushua is saying, look, you're so concerned about these man-made rules that you came up with concerning the laws of God. You forgot the important commands of the Father. The true commands of Yahuwah our God. Like what? <laughs> Love this example. Because right? Yahushua said you have a clever way of rejecting God's laws to uphold your own teachings. Because the Pharisees, they came up with their own teachings, perhaps to cater to their own agenda, 
what Yahusha says, I can see right through you. You have a clever way of projecting God's love. Like what? Like when you have an opportunity to help your father, your mother, you say, oh, this is Corbin. I dedicated this to God. I'm not going to help my father and mother. You nullify the word of God. And so after saying this, what was the conclusion of Yahusha concerning the Pharisees? In Mark 7, 14, 15, and Yahushua called the crowd to come in here. So after he spoke all that, he kind of felt, I'm going to give you the, the punchline now. He's going to give the punchline, the conclusion. He said, all of you listen. He said, try to understand. Here it is. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. See, Mark 7, 1 15, is a, it's not about the food. That's why you cannot say, okay, you can eat pork and lobster now if you want because of Mark 7, 1 to 15. No, it's not about that. What Yahushua is teaching is about hypocrisy. Yeah. What he's teaching about is you are so focused on the externals, you forget about what? Your heart. Isn't that what we see so much today? When it comes to organized religion, am I right? We see that a lot. They're so focused on the form, they forgot the power of the true religion. They're focused on the ritual, they forgot the heart, love, compassion, generosity, so on and so forth, right? And so when you look at the Bible, Yahuwah and Yahusha emphatically, they criticize hypocrisy. Because with hypocrisy, you have a way of condemning other people. I've done this, I do, I do this, I do this, therefore you are not holy. I am holy, you're not holy, you're going to go to hell. A lot of people are like that, especially religious folks. Right? They like to judge. And Yahushua and Yahuwah tell you, hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy in a nutshell? In the book of Matthew 23, 27, 28, what's, what sorrow awaits your teachers of religious law and your Pharisees? These are teachers of religious law. They study the word of God, the laws of Moses. But this is what Yahushua said. He said, hypocrites. You see, just because you master the Bible doesn't mean that you have been approved by God. There's so many people who have mastered studying the Bible, you know, the Greek word, the Hebrew word. But the question is, have they been approved by God? Right? Yahushua says, hypocrites. Yes, they may be teachers of religious law. Yahushua says hypocrites. Why? Why does he say hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Is that right? Outwardly, they show so much glory. Their buildings and temples ornate. They walk dignified like this, right? And they look down on you with piercing eyes. Yahushua says, hypocrites. Number one enemies of Yahushua are the Pharisees, religious leaders, teachers of the law. And so Mark 7, 1 down to 15 is about hypocrisy. It's about not upholding what God really wants. And so on the outside, they look religious. On the outside, they look glorious. On the outside, they look good. But on the inside, they're rotting, filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness, filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of 
impurity. So that's Mark uh, 7, 1 to 15. So I agree with this person. Mark 7, 1 to 15 is not, about, it's not about food. It's about hypocrisy and how Yahusha is against it. Okay? We need to live our life according to our heart. Now, the other part, we read uh, that Avinu, our father, says in scripture that they sanctify themselves, and this is in Isaiah 66, 17, that they sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh. What is swine? Yay. And the abomination. And what else do they eat? The mouse shall be consumed together, says Yahuwah. Isaiah 66, verse 17. Oh, boy. Question. Do we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in history? No. That's true. Or maybe it's being fulfilled now. For even until now, most people love to eat pork, bacon, ham. Is that true? How many here love pork? Bacon, ham. No one is raising their hands. <laughs> what sin is that? Oh. Except for a few who don't. But it certainly will be fulfilled when the Lord comes to judge all flesh. And then he cites 66, 16. For by fire and by his sword will Yahuwah plead with all flesh. And the slain of Yahuwah shall be many. And so the Bible says, and so what he's Basically, I guess the question I'm trying to answer is, when you look at this passage, what he's insinuating is this prophecy hasn't been fulfilled because it will take place 16, right? And you read uh, Isaiah 66, 16, 17, Yahuwah will punish the world by fire and by his sword. He will judge the earth and many will be killed by him. Those who consecrate and purify themselves in the sacred garden with its idol in the center Feasting on pork and rats and other detestable meats will come to a terrible end, says Yahuwah. And so this is a prophecy that hasn't taken place yet. It'll take place in the future. And so if it's going to take place in the future, and it says that Yahuwah is going to put a, bring a terrible end to those who's feasting on pork and rat meat, right? What is the question that you want to know? What is your question in your mind right now? What are you, what are you thinking about? Brother John, is this a command and warning from Yahuwah not to eat pig? Right? It is a command that we cannot have pork. What do you, what do you think? It's a mess. It seems like a prophecy to take place in the end times during the Christian era. And so if it's in the Christian era, God says he will put an end to those who eat pork. And because we belong to the Christian era, we should stop eating pork. What do you say? You agree not to eat pork anymore? I mean, I will limit my pork intake. But I don't believe that's what it says in the verse. Yahuwah God is not mentioning in Isaiah 66, verse 17, that we are not to eat pork. Perhaps Yahuwah would prefer for us not to eat pork because of health reasons, right? But it's not a prohibition from eating pork. Why? Because in the Christian era, during the New Testament times, this is what happened. In Acts 10, 11 to 14, we read this last week. It was already cleansed by who? Yahuwah our God. It was shown in a vision to the apostle Peter. Yahuwah even said, kill and 
eat. And so if that was a instruction not to eat, then God seems to be contradicting himself. Not only was it cleansed through uh, and revealed through a vision to Apostle Peter, the apostles had their first council ever. What was the purpose of this council? It was to discuss what we are to impose upon the Gentiles. Are we going to tell the Gentiles they have to be circumcised? Are we going to tell the Gentiles they cannot eat pork? And so when they received the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what did they come up with? In Acts 15, 29, you must abstain from eating food off of the idols, from consuming blood, and the meat of strangled animals. But they did not mention what? Pork and lobster and unclean animals. So it was revealed through a vision that God has cleansed uh, all animals. It was determined by the council that there's no longer a need to, uh, to impose the prohibition given to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, concerning what to eat, what not to eat. Right? That's number two. Number three, Apostle Paul says, so then let us stop judging one another. Instead, you should decide never to do anything that would make others stumble or fall into sin. My union with the Lord Yahusha makes me certain that no food, no food is of itself ritually what? Unclean, clear, right? Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul, and so Apostle Paul adds, do not judge those who eat pork, who eat meat, who eat certain foods. Not only that, number four, okay, this is the big part, number four, okay? Which is why I don't believe that Yahuwah God is commanding us not to eat pork. This is what it says in Timothy 4, 1 and 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, as during our time, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, what else? And commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them, which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused. If it be received with thanksgiving. And so there's nothing in the New Testament that is prohibiting us from eating the forbidden foods that were forbidden during the first covenant. Right? This is why Isaiah 66, 16 and 17 is not a command not to eat Rats. <laughs> if you want to eat rat, maybe you should do that. Want to eat pork? Personally, I would not advise for you to eat pork. Personally, if God said in the beginning, don't eat pork, there has to be a good reason. I believe that. Okay, but I'm not going to teach. Do not eat these these kinds of meats, because if I were to do that, we go back to what we read earlier, and I'm teaching a doctrine. I don't want to do that. That's so why when I preach Isaiah 66, 16 to 17, I'm not going to tell you because of this, hey, you should not eat lobster, you should not eat shrimp, you should not eat pork. Limit maybe your intake, but I'm not going to say abstain from that. Okay? Well, wait a minute, Brother John. Why does it say that Yahuwah is going to bring them to a terrible end? Let's read the passage. Let's read the context, shall we? Isaiah 66, uh, 16 and 17, Yahuwah will punish the world by fire and by his sword. Yeah, so there will be a time God will punish the whole world. He will judge the world. He will judge the earth and many will be killed by him. Those who consecrate and purify themselves in a sacred garden 
with its idol in the center, feasting on pork and rats and other detestable meats, will come to a terrible end, says Yahuwah. And so this passage is a warning of God, not about the meats to eat. No, this is a warning of God concerning a group of people who exhibit those very things, not just the feasting of the pork and rats. It sounds so yummy. <laughs> not just that, but look at the other elements of it. Remember, the book of Isaiah is a book of what? Patterns that repeats itself. We're going to show you the pattern of Isaiah 66, 65, and Isaiah 1. Okay, How it all connects. Isaiah 66, 16 to 17. It says that God is against this group of people. What do we need to understand about them? What were the descriptors included? Consecrate and purify. So they're religious people. And so they know the process by which they can consecrate and purify themselves. But what's the problem? They go to the sacred garden. They have a sacred garden. What else? They follow an idol at the center. Right? And these people are feasting on pork and rats and other detestable meats. In other words, these people are not pleasing to who? God. Who do you think they are? Who are they? Who is who are the ones specified in verse 17 who will be put, who will be who come to a terrible end? Well, let's read Isaiah 65, 2 down to 5. It says here, all day long. I opened my arms to a rebellious people, okay? But they follow their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. All day long, they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars. At night, they go out among the graves worshiping the dead. They eat the flesh of pigs and make stews with forbidden foods. Yet they say to each other, don't come too close or you will defile me. I am holier than you. These people are a stench in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. Do you see the hypocrisy? Right? They do all these detestable things against Yahuwah our God, and they think they're holier than the others. Do you see that? Who was Yahuwah God speaking about in verse 17 in Isaiah 66? In verse 2, it says, our rebellious people. You see, Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah is about a rebellious people of God and a remnant. That's all it's about. How the people of God rebels against him and God sets apart a remnant. And so Yahuwah God is talking about his people his people and his people who rebelled against him. How did they rebel against him? Many ways. One of which is insulted him because they set up their gardens, secret gardens. Do you know what a garden is? What does that mean when the Bible says gardens? What is, do you know the famous garden in history? Famous garden. Not the one in the Philippines. What's one of the most famous gardens in all of history? Yeah, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. We're going to watch this, okay, from YouTube. See you in history, mythology. 
In the Kingdom of Babylon around the year 600 BC, an outstanding work of architecture could be found, which would be known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Its edification was motivated by the love of King Nebuchadnezzar II for the princess Amidas of Medea. The Babylonian king had unified the kingdoms of Babylon and Medea, and after achieving his conquests, he returned home with Princess Amidas as his wife. Some accounts affirm that Amidas missed the mountains of Medea, which were covered by the most beautiful plants. But Babylon was a great plain, and its horizon was rather dull. Noticing his queen's dismayed nostalgia, the Babylonian king ordered the construction of an outstanding work of engineering. The great building then started, and a great pyramid of steps was edified, in which terraces were supported by beautiful columns. These terraces had an endless array of plants from everywhere. The garden was full of fruit trees and flowers of all colors. That construction was a source of amazement for all those who visited the capital of the Babylonian Empire and Princess Amidas, while contemplating such a marvelous garden, built by her husband, could feel her native land once more. Such a luxurious effort was only possible due to the economic power of the Kingdom of Babylon, which was the wealthiest nation of its era. Although several historical accounts confirm the existence of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the subject is still controversial, due to the lack of Babylonian documents that prove its existence and also the lack of archaeological findings. Little is known about what dictated the end of the imposing gardens. The number one hypothesis is earthquakes. Although this great work has vanished, the story of the beautiful hanging gardens, the fruit of the love between the king of Babylon and his queen, is still part of the folklore of current and future generations. Okay, natural question. What does that structure remind you of? Don't say it loud. What does it remind you of? The structure. What was the purpose of that structure? It was to show off the power, the majesty, the glory that they had. This is why they wanted people from all different lands to go to Babylon and to marvel at this feat of engineering because it would be earthquake proof, right? And they would get the glory for that. And so when people build gardens, it is an expression of self-aggrandizement. When you make yourself big, when you boast about your strength and your power, this is why when you look at that, that structure, it was an imposing structure. You wanted to send a message that I am strong and powerful. That was the message. That I have made glorious, right? And so it is really about stealth. It's about making yourself greater than you are. In a way, it is idolatry. And so when Yahuwah God was criticizing his people, he mentions the worship of idols in their sacred gardens, something never approved by God, yet because they wanted to show glory for themselves, they had these wonderful and elaborate engineering feats to create marvels to be included among the, was that the seven natural wonders of the ancient world, right? I mean, if there was a Guinness Book of World Record back then, 
probably the Guinness something, I don't know, most number of workers probably, right? And so that was one of them. What else does the Bible say? He said they eat the flesh of pigs and make stews and other forbidden foods, and then they have the audacity to say, do not touch me, right? I you might defile me. I'm holier than you. Can you imagine that? Right? And so they offer, so they want to consecrate and they want to purify themselves. And so they go through the rituals, but inwardly they're what? Corrupt, detestable, the eyes of God. What do you call it again? Hypocrisy. And so when they present their offerings to God, what does God say in Isaiah 66, verse 3? But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. And whoever offers a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a great offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns a memorial of incense, like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and their souls delight in their abominations. And so Yahuwah's God is saying that these people, my people, my rebellious people, even if you offer a sacrifice like a bull, even if it's a lamb, even if it's a grain offering, God will reject it, treating it as though you killed a man, like you broke a dog's neck, that you offered pig's blood. So God is saying is the hypocrisy of his people, because of that, Yahuwah rejects all of their detestable practices. You see what Yahuwah God is trying to spell out in detail here, right? And so what is God in store for them? 65, 5, uh, 6 to 7, look, my decree is written out in front of me. I will not stand silent. I will repay them in full. Yes, I will repay them, both for their own sins and for those of their ancestors, says Yahuwah. For they also burned incense on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will pay them back in full. This is why you have Isaiah 66, verse 17. Yahuwah said, I will pay them back in full. He's referring to his rebellious people. However, when Yahuwah God says, I will pay them back in full, what also did he say? And I, but I will not destroy them all, says Yahuwah. This is again the pattern of Isaiah. For just as good grapes are found among a cluster of bad ones, and someone will say, don't throw them all away. Some of, the, some of those grapes are good. So I will not destroy all Israel. For I shall have true servants there. I will preserve what? A remnant of the people of Israel and of Judah to possess my land. Those I choose will inherit it. My servants will live there. So Isaiah 65, 69 is about God's promise of deliverance. Despite the fact his people as a whole turns away from him, he still has a small remnant. How can you recognize this small remnant? Isaiah 66, 5. Hear this message from Yahuwah. All you who tremble at his words. What does that mean? They tremble at his words. They respect his words, right? Do you respect the words of God if you say, there's no need to study that? Do you respect the words of God if you say that? What do you think? If you truly respect the words of God, what are you going to do? You're going to study all of it, right? All of it. They respect the words of God. The remnant respect the word of God. This is what he says. Your own people hate you and throw you out or expel you for being loyal to my name. 
Let Yahuwah be honored. They scoff. Be joyful in him. But they will be put to shame. You see how the patterns repeat themselves again and again and again, right? Who are the remnants? They're the ones who are loyal to his name. How? They use the name of the Father. What else? They respect the words of God. But what will they do to them? They will still mock them. They will mock them and scoff at them. Let Yahuwah be honored, they say. So they use him. They use use words to ridicule these very small remnants of God. What is this similar to? The book of Isaiah, this pattern of God's people rebelling, right, and their offerings are no longer accepted by God. This is like Isaiah 1, 8 to 10. The people of God, the daughter of Zion, they have turned away from Yahuwah God. But what did God do? He set apart small remnants. And so what did Yahuwah God say about their sacrifices? And Isaiah 1, continue 11 to 14, he says, Do you think I want all these sacrifices you keep offering to me? I have had more than enough of the sheep you burn as sacrifices and of the fat of your fine animals. I am tired of the bulls, the blood of bulls and sheep and goats. Who asked you to bring me all this when you come to worship me? Who asked you to do all this tramping around my temple? It's useless. It's useless to bring your offerings. I am disgusted. The smell of the incense you burn. I cannot stand the new moon festivals, your Sabbaths, and your religious gatherings. They are all corrupted by your sins. I hate your new moon festivals and holy days. They're a burden that I'm tired of bearing. When you lift your hands in prayer, I will not look at you. No matter how much you pray, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with blood. And so Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. The pattern also is found in Isaiah chapter 1. They're all connected. Isaiah is describing the rebellious nature of the people of God and how they turn away from him again and again. And when they do, what does Yahuwah say? Your worship is nothing to me now. Your offerings are nothing to me now. Because to Yahuwah are God, they are hypocrites. They go through the motions. But they eat rats and pork. You see the imagery? The imagery, the metaphors that the prophet Isaiah uses. And so Yahuwah says, I'm not accepting your offerings anymore. Before he can accept your offerings, what does Yahuwah command him to do? 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. This is what God wants his people to do. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. For the widow. God wants them to do these things. But what instead do they do? Isaiah 21, 22, 23. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case has not come before them. God gives them a chance to repent. But they ignore it. And what do they do? They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. And they also do not listen to the plea of the widow. Not only that, the Bible says they become rebels, companions of thieves. They love bribes and chase after gifts, which is why they have become so powerful. 
But what is the what is the promise of God concerning them? Look at what it says in the last parts of Isaiah. We'll conclude Isaiah chapter one. But he will crush everyone who sins and rebels against him. He will kill everyone who forsakes him. The same phraseology in Isaiah 66. You notice that? Right? You will be sorry that you ever worshiped trees and planted. What does it say? Sacred gardens. You will wither like a dying oak, like a garden that no one waters. Just a straw is set on fire by a spark. So powerful people will be destroyed by their own evil deeds, and no one will be able to stop the destruction. So what would happen to those who lead the people of God away from him? The Bible says, yes, they will plant their sacred gardens. They will promote external and glorious to the eyes aspects of religion. But inside, inside, they're really detesting God. Inside, they're really eating pork. They're really eating rat meat. But they don't see that. And they have the audacity to say, I'm holier than you. But what does God say? Your powerful people will be destroyed by their own evil deeds. Why? Are they, what's the proof that they are powerful? They have sacred gardens. Back in those days, if you had a sacred garden, you were powerful. And so their token of power is their sacred garden. Those sacred gardens, the Bible says, they have no water. What does that mean? Garden without water. What does it mean that these powerful people who will be destroyed, that they planted their sacred gardens? In Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8, this is what Yahuwah says, Curse are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from Yahuwah. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness and in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in Yahuwah and have made Yahuwah their hope and confidence. They are trees, they are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. So the Bible says that when the sacred gardens run out of water, that's it. What is the equivalent of that? They place their confidence and trust in human strength. And when you do that, the Bible says you're cursed. And so the Bible is telling us we must not rely on human strength. We must not rely on human beings. Rather, place our confidence in our all mighty God. So when we look at Isaiah 66, 6, 7, those who consecrate and purify, they practice religious rituals, but inwardly they feast on what? Pork. Rats. Do you see the hypocrisy? Very similar to what Yahushua said. On the outside, they look like they're consecrating themselves, purifying themselves, but at the same time, they're also feasting on pork. On the outside, they want to help their fellow man. On the outside, they build big temples. But inside, they really detest the word of our Almighty God. What else? The Bible says that they have a sacred garden. They have placed their hope not in God, but on things made by human hands. 
What else? It's idle in the center. You know, in other translations of the Bible, you know what it says? In Isaiah 6, 6 17, it says that verse 17, those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, follow the one in the midst of those who eat the flesh of pigs and rats and other abominable things. And so this idol that's in the center is actually a person that they have followed. And because of that, it has led them away from Yahuwah, our God. However, what will happen after God will destroy them? Isaiah 66, 20. They will bring the remnant of your people back from every nation. So God has remnants from every nation. And God will bring them together. He will bring them to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, as an offering to Yahuwah. Ride on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says Yahuwah. And I will appoint some of them to be my priests and Levites. I, Yahuwah, have spoken. And after this, what will happen? Isaiah 66, 22-24, as a new heavens and a new earth that I make will endure before me, because Yahuwah, so will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says Yahuwah. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who fell against me. The worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. That's God's wrath. However, in the midst of God's wrath is God's deliverance. A very small remnant, a very small remnant, he will set apart. And they will be the one to receive the promises of our God. So Isaiah 66, 17 is not a prohibition from eating meat or pork, right? It is God's warning against his rebellious people who claim that they are holier than others, but inwardly. They have rejected the works of our Almighty God. Okay? All right. That's our lesson for today. Let us all stand and we shall pray together. Blasting Father. Yes. Yahuwah Almighty. Yes. Thank you so much for your holy words that we have received this day. Yes. Indeed, we tremble at your words. Yes. Which is why we want to know your commandments. We will do our best to discern truth from error. Yes. As human beings, we need your guidance. Yes. We pray for your Holy Spirit. That, Father, we will know the truth. Yes. And fulfill them with our hearts. Amen. Father, bless your people throughout the world. Yes. We believe there are remnants in every nation. Yes. And we believe that you are gathering all of us together. That we can be your instruments to proclaim your righteousness. Amen. Lord Yahushua HaMashiach, yes, thank Lord. you so much. For we have you as our true leader. Yes. You are the one that we follow. Yes. We belong to you. Please yes, remember your servants. When you return, we want to be with you, alongside yes, you, as we enter the new Jerusalem. Amen. Father, thank you so much for listening to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua Amen. Amen.